Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you in worship. Uh, We are in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39 this morning. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, it'll also be on the screens today. Uh, And yes, this is week 10 of our 15-week series on Romans. We're two-thirds, five weeks to go, and I hope that this has been an enriching series for you. Johnson's welcome back home from your home, and as you go home from home, uh, as Amy said, we do go with you in our prayers and our support. Bless you and your family, your beautiful family. I invite all of you to greet them today, and also Isaac, today's his birthday. So uh, we told their son that we all gathered today for him. And, uh, and last hour, we even sang happy birthday to him. So feel free to just bust out in song in the lobby later, later if you want. Um, I, I want to acknowledge something before I preach on this text today. I preach this text with a heaviness in my heart because as a pastor, I know many of the struggles that you are dealing with. Um, I don't know if this is news to you, but as pastors, people don't often swing by our office to talk about football. We have people coming in to talk about struggle, real life struggle. It's with that heaviness. I had the unfortunate task of preaching and officiating a funeral here yesterday for a 17-year-old. Real struggle. And it is, it is from that place that I preach the conclusion of Romans 8 today. I know that many of you are walking through difficult days. And I, I don't know all of your stories and all of your testimonies and all of your struggles today, but I want to name that. Because it's hard, we wrestle with the text as we live out our own lives. So, in that spirit, we're in Romans 8, 31 through 39 this morning. For the literary context, this paragraph concludes the whole argument from Romans all the way back to 1, 18 to 8, 30. And it opens in 8, 31 with a rhetorical question that places all of Paul's audience, including you and including me, at the summit, inviting us to look back at everywhere that we've traveled so far in Romans. And he writes this, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I did a lot of reading this week on what Paul was referring to when he wrote these And it's possible that he's pointing back at the overall thesis of his letter up to this point, which I just see it as God demonstrated his love for his people by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and therefore no enemy, whether sin, flesh, shame, or death, will ever be able to prevail over them. First service was loud. I'm going to need somebody to talk back to me. This is really good this morning. This is really, really good. need somebody to talk back to me. Um, It also could be possible that he's just simply referring to the final clause of his previous statement, 
in 830, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Regardless, he makes a statement through his question. He makes a statement through his question. This happened to me just recently at our house. I came out of the bedroom. My wife looked at me and she said, you're not going to wear that, are you? Has this happened to anybody? Or is it just me? She, she, by asking, she was making a statement. And it wasn't the question, you're not going to wear that, are you? It's a statement. You are not going to wear that. And you need to return to the closet. And you need to try again. It's a statement. Paul's question, if God is for us, who can be against us, it is a statement. He's saying, God is for us, and therefore no one and nothing can be against us. Amen? As we look back at what we've studied so far in Romans, conflict is a prominent feature. Conflict between God and sinful people, life and death, sin and righteousness, flesh and the will to please God, flesh and the Spirit. And Paul's saying in all these areas of conflict, God's people will prevail because God has taken our side. So Paul asks, who can be against us? Now, he's not suggesting through this statement, through a question, that we do not have an enemy. We know we have an enemy. We know we have opposition. On our way to my son's football games or basketball games, I ask him every single game, who are you playing against today? And you may think you would hear him say, oh, Wasso or, 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 or Bixby or Broken Arrow. You would think he would say the exact team that we're playing against. But my son's answer, who are you playing against today? He says, it doesn't matter, Dad. It doesn't matter. And he doesn't say that to be cocky. He says that because I've trained him. No matter who you're competing against, you step on that field or you step on that court unafraid of your opponent. Don't start this game scared of your opponent. With Paul, he's saying, yes, we do have an enemy, but should we live our lives afraid of him? No, absolutely not. We do not live in fear. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Another question. All things, of course, is not referring to all the things that you think you need in order to make your life happy. Sorry, not sorry. This has to be understood in the broader context of Romans 8, 17 through 30. There, Paul writes, we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus, and after sharing in his suffering, we will share in his glory, verse 17, and creation itself will be liberated one day from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom, verse 21, so this is the promise, God will one day graciously give a restored universe to his redeemed people. Boy, this is good. Somebody needs to wake up. This is good. I love what one commentator writes about this verse. It is illogical to conceive that God would give his most treasured possession, his only son, to secure the salvation of sinners and then not also give 
all else that is necessary to bring that salvation to completion. In other words, nothing can frustrate or delay or hinder or stop God's redemptive plans. God wins. 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In this text, we are witnessing the drama of a heavenly courtroom scene. So I want you to picture this with me. I want you to go into this courtroom with me. The accused, that's you and me, we are on the witness stand, and our legal position before God is being tested. We are being grilled with questions by the prosecuting attorney, Satan, that is our accuser, and he brings up every single sin that you have committed over the course of your entire life, past, present, and he's also just dogging you in your future. He's accusing you, left and right, he's accusing me. And we know from him that the wages of our sin is death. He's trying to rub our nose in that. We deserve justice, not mercy. We deserve hell, not heaven. And when the prosecution has finished, it would appear that you and I do not stand a chance. But we have a defense lawyer, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he provides very clear evidence as to why you and I have been forgiven. The evidence is in his nail-pierced hands and feet. His evidence is in the scars on his brow from the crown of thorns that was pressed into his skull. And after hearing the evidence of Jesus Christ, God, the great and ultimate judge, pronounces case dismissed, and he completely erases our charges. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2, 14. And then continuing with the legal theme, which ensures our freedom from charges and condemnation, he asks, who is the one who condemns? Who is it? Well, it's not Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and the accuser has confused you, the, the accuser has made you think that Jesus himself, the one who came out of love to redeem the world, if the accuser has convinced you that, that you are being condemned by Christ, hello! Not true. Jesus Christ does not condemn you. Period. Listen to this. We also have a divine advocate constantly defending us against the accuser. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the chosen one. 1 John 2, 1. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet he did not sin. Let us then, this is for you right here, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4. In 35 to 39, the focus will shift away from sin and suffering becomes our new theme. Look at this with me, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? Somebody told me after last service, it's nakedness. Danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are, everybody say more. No, say it, more. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor if you forgot anything, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Suffering, although real, cannot separate you from the love of God. Persecution cannot separate you from the love of God. The earliest Christians, including Paul, were very familiar with these experiences. And Jesus warned them, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Matthew 10, 28. Well, Jesus didn't say, do not be afraid of those, never mind, I'll protect you every time. No, he said, don't be afraid, don't live in fear of what might harm you, but cannot kill the soul. By the time Paul wrote Romans, John the Baptist had lost his head. Jesus had been crucified. Peter and John and other apostles had been arrested. A violent mob had murdered Stephen. John's brother James had been killed. And post-conversion, Paul had experienced everything in verse 35 other than execution And we have to remember the context in which Paul wrote this letter. When we do remember the context, it seems all the more well-timed and necessary. Paul wrote Romans in approximately A.D. 57, and a few years later in 64, a violent fire swept through the empire. It burned for seven days. It burned down 10 of the 14 districts and over 70% of the city. Word began to spread that the emperor Nero is the one who set the fire because he was looking for new real estate to build himself a new palace. And we can't prove this, but tradition says that as the fire was burning, he was on the rooftops watching, playing a fiddle. Right? He didn't care. The fire was to his advantage. Well, what does an emperor do when these rumors are swirling around the community and people are starting to think poorly about his leadership? What do you do? Well, he shifted the blame. 
And who did he shift the blame onto? Christians. He started spreading the word that this new religious group of people, right? This, this, this new zealous community, they're the ones that set the fire. So the people started attacking the Christians for the fire, impaling them on poles and then taking those poles and setting them on the street corners at night, covering their bodies in tar and lighting them on fire to serve as torches to light up the city streets, beating them. They were marginalized. They would throw their bodies to hungry dogs inside of arenas for their entertainment. It got really, really nasty for those early Christians. They were persecuted horrifically. So as you know that historical context of what was going on just a few years after Paul wrote these words, I have a question for you. Does verse 37 seem to be true here? Does that group of Christians sound like a group of people that were more than conquerors as they were being struck down, beaten, and killed? How how do you reconcile that? Well, to answer that question, I'll ask you another question. Is everybody bragging today about the Roman Empire? Who conquered whom? Yes, they were killing Christians, but all we have to do to answer this question is look at the worldwide church that is growing. It is vibrant. People are coming to know Christ as Lord. That's what people are talking about today. Not the Roman Empire, but the church of Jesus Christ. How do we know that Christians are victorious? How do we know that Christians are conquerors? Because we're seeing over a dozen baptisms in a place that that hasn't happened in, I think you said, over a decade. So who's more than conquerors? Followers of Jesus. And all these things, verse 37 says, and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen? To conclude... I want to share six principles that are true from the entire chapter 8. And then I want to ask you a question to ponder following these principles. Don't worry about writing these down. I can email them to you. Just email me and ask. I'd rather you really concentrate on these as as I share these with you. Number one, in Christ, I am free from any condemnation. So my question for you is, do you harbor a sense of shame today? Shame for things that you have already been forgiven for. Number two, in Christ, I am obligated to be led by the Spirit. I wonder today, are there any areas of your life where you are not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you? Number three, in Christ, I am a child of God and a co-heir with Christ. So my question for you, is as an adopted child, as a member of this family, how are you contributing? What contribution are you making to this family? Number four, in Christ I will be redeemed from this cursed creation. So I wonder, how do you rely on your future redemption when you are facing your present struggles? Number five, In Christ, I am certain 
of my eternal glorification. So what difference should the promise of your future make on your present life today? Lastly, in Christ, I fear nothing, either in or out of this world. So what do you fear? What do you fear today? And why? In light of the promises of Jesus. As you ponder these questions, my friends, remember that in Christ, sin, condemnation, guilt, shame do not have the final word. The Bible does not say that you are conquered. Boy, that'd be a different sermon today, wouldn't it? Turn to Romans 8. It says, you are thereby conquered. I don't know why I just did that voice. The Bible, the Bible does not say that you are conquered. I'm looking for somebody to agree with me. The Bible does not say that you are conquered. The Bible does not say that you have conquered sin, shame, and struggle. The Bible says because we are in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Thank you, Father, for Romans chapter 8. Let's worship together. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.